Today's episode is brought to you by DEI Navigator from the Diversity Movement. Here's the deal. More than 80% of organizations have already taken action on diversity, equity, and inclusion. But if you're one of the people who's suddenly in charge of leading those DEI efforts, there's a good chance you're feeling overwhelmed, confused, and alone. That's why the diversity movement created DEI Navigator. This new monthly membership service is designed exclusively for small to medium-sized businesses who are committed to DEI action and results. It's everything you need all in one place. Access to proven business leaders and certified diversity executives, expert curated content, how-to guides, training, and a community of peers sharing their ideas and lessons learned. All at a fraction of the cost of hiring a full-service DEI consultancy. For more information, head on over to thediversitymovement.com slash AU. That's thediversitymovement.com slash AU. All right, let's get to the show. And I don't think we lean on each other enough throughout this process because we're always trying to be strong and we're always trying to survive versus thrive. I am not doing anyone any favors. I'm actually just supporting strength that already exists. And that's what makes me so passionate is that I'm coming from a position of facilitating greatness. Welcome to Equity Raise, leveling the landscape for diverse founders and their VCs. Each year, less than 3% of venture capital funding is invested in startups led by founders of color and women. I am your host, Naya Fela Powell, the founder and CEO of Utopia Spa and Global Wellness. As a Black woman who has experienced the headwinds, ups, and the downs of fundraising, I'm excited to share these conversations with you. Today, we're joined by Tiffany Stannard, founder and CEO of Stimulus, a platform to help businesses build better relationships with partners and vendors. Think of Stimulus as an online dating app, but for business relationships. And that word, relationship, it is so important when it comes to raising equity. We go to these conferences and meetups and pitch events and happy hours, and it's all great, but it's also exhausting. Tiffany is a master at this. It all started when she was an executive in vendor management working with some of the world's largest publicly traded companies in her corporate career. Now, as an entrepreneur, she has built a platform that's incredibly valuable to those same larger companies. We have over a million suppliers on our platform where how do you quickly add to your suppliers to say, hey, we're putting out this RFP and we're looking for 20 great companies and we want to make sure at least half of them are diverse. If you don't already have diverse companies and your database for that, how do we match you and help you find folks so it's a fair process and you're making a better diverse, inclusionary, equitable procurement and sourcing decision? In 2020, Tiffany received a $50,000 grant from Google for Startups Black Founders Fund and recently oversubscribed on a $2.5 million round from various investors. Later, we'll bring in one of Tiffany's investors, Himalaya Rao, Managing Director of the BFM Fund. But to start, I asked Tiffany about her secret sauce. What makes the stimulus platform unique? Yeah, so it's two things. It's one, we have a proprietary score that helps companies make a objective, unbiased decision of like you're rating them based upon performance. 
And based upon the ratings that they've gotten, score that they've gotten from other buyers that are similar to you, and you're looking at that saying, I want to continue to work with that company. And then we're going through the relationship from the time that they get on the platform to the time that they get a contract, to the time that you pay them, to the time that you do other things with that company. So say you match to an amazing Black-owned IT company, and you can see who worked with that person, who put them in the system, who, how many contracts they were considered for, if they actually got that contract, and mm -hmm. how did they do on that contract? Were they scored in a great way? Did they get um, introduced to another department because of that scoring? Like you have that full tracking of understanding when you met them, how you met them, and how that relationship is going. Because Beautiful. now everything is very transactional when it comes to, they say it's relationships when it comes to you getting into a corporate supply chain. But then when you're on the platform, it's very like the name of the company, address, you have a little bit of information on that company, you pay them, did you get the payment on time? And that's it. It's just so mechanic. And I wanted to make sure that you're tracking the relationship the way you do an email and then transferring it onto the platform. So you're able to really easily compare suppliers using those metrics and data points and then track what they're doing with you throughout the company and who has worked with them. Right now in procurement, everybody has their kind of own budget within different teams within a large enterprise. So half the time, you don't know who's working with who. It sounds like it offers a holistic visibility. Exactly. So you can, yeah, you can see all the touch points and yeah. And, and, you know, just how that vendor performed and who's worked with them and all of that great stuff. Exactly. Exactly. Wonderful. And it goes even beyond that. Like, for example, you doing, you know, us getting into Google, right? We got mm -hmm. into Google, Google for startups. We got funding from them. And then you've done some work with them. And you, you know, you spoke at the retreat. You did some of your classes at, you know, past retreats with Google. Imagine tracking all of that information, right? You got into right. BFB. You got money from their fund. You got a contract with them. And now you're working throughout Google. It's like tracking that entire relationship from the time journey. you had that first touch point to the time you actually became a vendor with them and then mm. beyond that. Oh, that's beautiful. Absolutely. And I think sometimes as founders and entrepreneurs, we don't even realize how much we've done a lot of times until we really sit down and we have to prepare it um, for our, our pitch deck or executive summary or something of that nature. And then it does blow your mind like, wow, you know, I have worked with some notable clients. So I love the fact that you're helping these smaller businesses to be able to capture that so companies can have more confidence. Uh, in their ability and not just kind of pass them by. Right. You bring up a good point because it was also my thought on the vendor side. As you, you said, it's like I spent 15 years working with major corporations and I felt like every single time I was selling my product or service, it was like I was reselling myself over and over again. I'm like, do you know who I work with? <laughs> like, all these years, like, why do I keep having to like showcase to you? I work with some of the biggest companies in the world. Yes. And it was it was on both sides. Like you as a buyer need to know and then me as a vendor how do I show it to you that you're not right. just taking a chance on me, but I have the skill set and the experience to actually do well in this contract and beyond? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so you've touched on a few very notable accomplishments um, for yourself and Stimulus. What would you say has been your proudest founder moment? Surviving. <laughs> I know that's right. <laughs> but you're thriving too. <laughs> You're surviving yeah, exactly. and now you're I'm thriving. Going from surviving <laughs> to thriving. 
And, you know, from, you know, the expanding, you want to call pivot from 2017 to 2019 and, and getting our, our first yeses and getting into Google for startups, BFE, and we got, you know, funding from the city of Philadelphia. We got our first investors in 2019. And then we started getting yeses after that, right? And we got into the Morgan Stanley Accelerator. We're currently in the Northwestern Mutual Accelerator. We got into Microsoft Accelerator. Like, you go from this back-to-back no's to like back-to-back yeses. Mm-hmm. But it was we still was always in survival mode, not to say that we're not, because we're still the startup. But mm-hmm. then COVID hit and I was like, oh Lord. <laughs> like, yeah. And all of my investors just kept saying, Tiffany, I just want you to survive. Whatever happens, I don't care if you make a dollar, just survive. Mm-hmm. And because of our interest industry of supplier diversity and, and supply chain and just making better purchasing decisions it actually elevated our company because people now wanted to talk about supply chain and they understood understood what it meant and they understood, hey, people of color, diverse folks are not getting the same access across the board, but especially in contracts and business. So it actually, you know, the bad and I don't want to say good of COVID, but the non-con of COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Situation um, was to highlight even across the board for certain industries and certain companies that really thrive throughout COVID and then, you know, bringing in other investors and other partners. And so, you know, we are now kind of past survival mode, but in the thriving side of things and we have a great team and investors. So yeah, surviving is the biggest thing sometimes as a, as an entrepreneur. Absolutely. Um, And so it actually leads into, you know, one of my next questions for you. Um, But as you were talking, I was just thinking about the the tragic death of George Floyd, but how that created a spotlight on uh, systemic racism in a way that was undeniable that people could not avoid, they could not escape from because of the pandemic. Right. Because now we're at home, right? And we're clocked in, in front of our TVs. And now, you know, so it really helped to elevate a conversation that's been needed, uh, that we've been needing to have for a long time. Um, and I think that has amplified the focus on creating more equity in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, supplier diversity, and all of those things. Um, so there, in in the midst of the pandemic and all of these things, there's been a little bit of a silver lining to create a bit more focus on leveling the playing field. And so as you talked about just surviving, right? You know, entrepreneurship is one of the hardest things that we'll ever do. Um, and so, you know, tell us about a time where you almost threw in the towel and what made you keep going? You know, it's funny because people don't talk about that enough. And people think if you say you almost threw on the towel throughout your entire time being an entrepreneur, <laughs> that it means that you don't want to be an entrepreneur. And it doesn't. It just means you're tired. I would say, you know, before we pivoted in 2019, I was going to throw on the towel because it was like two years of trying to figure out what we wanted to do and figure out the direction of the company. It was just hard. So I'm like, okay, if I don't figure this out by 2019, if we don't get an investor, I'm, you know, I'm going to go work at one of these corporations and get six, right. seven figures and call it a night. Right. And then we got our first investor and got into BFE. I'm like, all right, God want me to do this. Let's go. Yes. So I'm going to keep yes. going. And then 2020 hit and I'm like, okay, I was in a process of, you know, we had closed some money and I was in the process of bringing on employees as the world was shutting down and nobody was going into the office. And I'm like, oh God, should I continue to hire you? Should I just sit on this money and survive <laughs> or should I be spending mm-hmm. and, and releasing this product and, and growing? And I'm like, okay, I can't just sit on this money. So either we're going to spend it and, and grow this product and get customers or I'm going to shut this company down. 
So mm-hmm. in the elevation, like I said, of supply chain and all of that became a thing. I was like, oh, people are caring about what we're building. Let's go. And, you know, we released our product, got customers on and, and brought in some good revenue before the year ended. And then we got the Google money. So that was another yes. elevation. It was like, all right, cool. We got money from Google. Can't tell me nothing. Got it. <laughs> to the next. Um, and then we just got some really great angel investors and, and got a couple of VCs. And it was like, okay. So it was a couple of times, you know, yeah. that I was like, oh, I'm done. I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. It's those lifelines. It's those lifelines. No, I totally can relate. When I received my funding, I mean, I always say I cried my eyes out. <laughs> the folks that were delivering the news, they were crying with me because you get so exhausted and you just don't know where it's going to come from. But the beautiful thing in, in your testimony is if you just keep going, a lot of times that breakthrough is around the corner and it's right there. And so I'm so glad that you did keep going. Thank you. Shout out to Google yeah, <laughs> and, your, Google. and your first investor. <laughs> I showed up proud when I got that money because I was so tired. I'm still in survival mode and we had yeah. some money in the bank, but we were you know, still not doing great. And it, was, right. it wasn't even the amount. It was just the fact that Google put some money in your company. And you're like, okay, you, yeah. you tell me nothing after that. I don't care yeah. if it's, you know, whatever it's coming from, that's important. Yeah. And it's just it another is. validation for a small company that's trying to grow that you have great people and great partners around you. So Absolutely. Absolutely. What does it mean to you, Tiffany, to be a Black female founder? Mm, so many things. <laughs> to be a Black female founder is to make sure that every single day I am thriving and growing and highlighting women around me to do the same. Because I found throughout this process, we don't talk to each other as much as we should when we're going through things. And we're going through a lot of the similar things and things that will make you say that you quit and you want to give up. And I don't think we lean on each other enough throughout this mm-hmm. process because we're always trying to be strong and we're always trying to survive versus thrive. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's about, you know, be, being a, a black female founder is about creativity and resilient and strong and community. And mm-hmm. I wish that we would lean on each other more for those things. I remember just going through a, a bad situation last year and a friend of mine was going through something similar and we didn't talk to each other about it until the end because as black women, we always want to come with the problem in the solution versus just mm-hmm. telling people the problem, mm-hmm. thinking we always need to have a solution to the problem versus just venting and getting help with the problem, right? Yes. And yes. I wish that her and I would have talked to each other throughout the process because maybe the process wouldn't have been as hard. So Absolutely. I'm trying to work on, you know, elevating and and um, leaning into my community more. I love that. And you're you're not just talking about it, you're being about it because I saw that you have your podcast, which is Supply Plus Demand. And so creating that space for Black female founders to share their voice and elevate their voice. And I love that. And so, you know, in this world of of Black women and having to operate in strength and resilience, a lot of times we're not as vulnerable as we need to be. And so what I hear you saying is that leaning into our vulnerability is also where our strength lies because we can kind of grow as we lift, as we climb, right? And we can really support one another through community. So that's a beautiful thing for sure. So, you know, being a Black female founder that decided to raise, and we know that this path is daunting. So we know that Black female founders raise less than 1% of VC funding. 
And that really needs to change. And you have been successful at this. So tell us how you decided to first start to pursue, you know, VC funding. Give us a little snippet of your journey around that and what that felt like. Um, I know what it feels like for me. I'm earlier in my stages than you, but tell us what that felt like and when you knew it was time. Yeah, that's a journey. Uh, (laughs) That's a whole process. So when when we first started Stimulus, we were an LLC and then we we switched to our Inc. in 2019. So that was my first transition of sometimes when we start businesses, we started as small businesses and we don't understand the difference between a small business and a startup. Um, so that was a learning curve from people around me and at conferences that I end up going to and understanding what is the process to get VC funding and, and what is that process to prepare your company to obtain it and understanding why you want to you know, obtain VC funding, how quickly do you want to move or do you want to operate like a small business and a lifestyle business? And I knew I spent 15 years as a lifestyle business and I did not want to continue as a lifestyle business. I wanted a team. I wanted to grow. I wanted millions of dollars. I wanted all of it. Right. And I knew that I deserved it. And I knew that I wanted to move a lot quicker than I'd done with previous companies. So Mm -hmm. I started speaking to other founders, meeting them at conferences. When we first got our first investor, like, I don't even know how I pitched him and closed him because I definitely didn't know half of what I was saying to him. I think he just believed in me. He was like, all right, I'll invest 100K. What? Wow, that's incredible. Your first, your first <laughs> investor. Yes. So I think he just was like, all right, she won't figure it out. And, you know, we went back and forth with the lawyers and, you know, did my first convertible note. And it happened right before we went to Google BFE in, in North Carolina. And I was like, I have hundred K in my bank. <laughs> <laughs> so it took some time and, yeah. you know, and he introduced me a couple of folks and I got a couple of VCs from there and then got some angels and then it slowed down because at that time, I think they invested in me personally. But then when I went to go after, because if some of them were Philadelphia, so I already had a pretty good network in Philly, just being in mm-hmm. business for 15 years. Mm-hmm. But then when I started to go after investors that were, you know, unknown to me and were not in Philly, that's when it became difficult. I'm like, all right, my pitch deck ain't right. <laughs> my stuff mm-hmm, is not mm-hmm. right. And I had to learn how to pitch better and tell my story better mm-hmm. and to make sure that I'm genuine in how I'm explaining what we're trying to do. Um, mm-hmm. And then those accelerators help. That's, you know, we went through Google and other accelerators at that time. So then I learned how to pitch better how to not ramble and shorten my pitch and all of that. So Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to be um, a scalable technology company. So I knew I needed to go after investors um, to elevate that. And while we're building out a product that's for enterprise, I need to be able to pay my team and pay myself. And unfortunately, you can't just do that waiting on enterprise contracts to come in, right? It takes a while for that to happen. So it took a lot of, you know, trial and error and a lot of learning. And definitely these, these corporate partnerships and accelerators have helped just tone down, you know, how long I pitched and what the deck looks like and the language that you need to use when it comes to ARR and all of that stuff. And I'm like, okay, I get, I get what that means. <laughs> like all of yes. that, like it just so yes. many things. And you mentioned supply and demand earlier. Like, you know, I created those events to elevate black women focused on things we're never asked to speak about. So it's like your margins, your business stuff that people just never asked us to speak on. So I had to learn those things. So I've Absolutely. been doing that for a while. It's like, okay, how do you speak to your margin? How do you speak that you're going to be a billion dollar company? Um, and actually believe it yourself, not to say it because it's buzzword, but actually, you know, believe it yourself as well. 
Absolutely. And when you talk about the accelerators, it ties back to community and it ties back to relationships. And I know how much we lean on each other just from our Google community and network. So there's our relationships are worth their weight in gold. And as we hear some people say, your network is your net worth. And so there's so much value, not only in, you know, investment of dollars, but investment of resources and, and knowledge sharing and just relationships and introductions. And I see you doing that. So it's like super powerful the way you're kind of living out your own legacy, you know, of what it is you knew that you needed and empowering others and paying it forward. So talk to us a little bit about um, your investor partners. I know that you invited one of your investor partners to be with us today and so excited uh, to dive into conversation with Himalaya Rao and just tell us, you know, how you even connected with Himalaya and, um, you know, just what has been some of the, the value in having this relationship with her. We have amazing investors and I'm thankful for, for all of them, especially, you know, all of the women investors, um, cause they are really important at being a woman. And we just closed on our $2.5 million round. Wow. Um, Kudos. Oversubscribed. Cause our goal was like wow. 1.5 to two and we got to 2.5. So, oh my gosh. you know, that's a buzzword. You want to say oversubscribed. So yes, well, yes. <laughs> um, so we're excited about that. And I was introduced to Himalaya through a mutual friend that we all know and love, Jim at, what's this company called? Meter Feeder. Meter, Meter Feeder. Feeder. Okay. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Who is also <laughs> BFM, BFE, you know, alum and Google for startups. And, you know, him and I was just catching up. He was like, hey, I need to introduce you to some amazing investors that we have. And was talking a lot about Himalaya. And I was like, okay. He was like, and they, you know, they really focus on like self-care and, you know, mental health. And I'm like, okay, sounds great. So I reached out to her. I think I filled out the the Google form or something on the website, reached out to her. We ended up getting on a meeting and I just kept bugging her. She would tell you, I kept emailing her and following up with her because she was taking forever to get back to me. I was like, Himalaya, like you say you like to tell me what's going on. And I kept emailing her, emailing her, emailing her. And she kept saying, thank you for the follow-up. But I was like, yeah, because so finally we ended up meeting and it seemed like it was going through and all of that great stuff. And then she was planning a, a retreat for all of the founders Ooh. in Portland. And I'm like, oh, a retreat. So she talked about it, but then I didn't get the invite. I was like, okay, what's going on? And then I finally got the invite like <laughs> two weeks prior. And I was like, okay, I guess that means she's investing because she's inviting me to this founders retreat. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had a meeting in Portland and I was just so thankful for her planning out this retreat focused on, you know, self-care and mm. massages and Love it. beautiful house. And I can't tell you any investor that has done that for me. And then she ended up investing by the end of the year and she's definitely one of the people that I think to to talk to and, and and go to for different situations, even prior to even closing the investment. I was like, she's one of those people that is easy to talk to. You sometimes mm -hmm. have investors that are just money and they just give you money and you talk to them when you talk to them. Mm -hmm. And then you have investors where they give you money and you can't wait to talk to them. And that's where yeah. Um, yeah. Himalaya is definitely that person. Let's take a quick break. While you know me as the host of the Equity Raise podcast, I'm also the founder and CEO of Utopia Spa and Global Wellness. As a founder and former corporate professional, I truly understand how stressed we are. With 72% of entrepreneurs suffering with mental health challenges, I knew that we needed to do something in creating a digital wellness platform that's addressing global burnout and the future of work and wellness. 
Utopia Spawn Global Wellness offers live and on-demand virtual classes, such as mindfulness, yoga, Pilates, cultural movement, wellness coaching, workshops, and retreats. You see, we're helping people show up as their healthiest and happiest selves daily. Also helping employers achieve their talent, retention, recruitment, and productivity goals. Our multicultural holistic approach to wellness celebrates mindful diversity, inclusion, and belonging. To learn how you can get started today, head on over to utopiasgw.com. Again, utopiasgw.com. Now let's get back to the show. I love to hear how much uh, you care about your founders and their wellness, Himalaya. So, you know, being in the space of of wellness um, myself, I know that 72% of founders you struggle with mental health conditions. And it's something that we don't talk about a lot, um, but it's everything from suicidal ideation to actually committing to substance abuse, to ADHD, to depression, anxiety, and so forth. And Black founders, Black people suffer from mental health challenges 20% more than uh, the rest of the population. So you think about that, that puts Black founders in that 90 percentile range. So it's beautiful to hear about this retreat. Um, I'm connecting all the dots because when I saw you, I think you had recently come from a retreat. <laughs> and so, um, so now I'm connecting all the dots. So so kudos to you for that. So um, it, it, Himalaya, it's great to hear how the two of you learned about one another through Gem, a part of our community. What was your first impression of Tiffany as a founder? One of the things that you know Tiffany mentioned was that when she pitched to her first investor. She didn't really know what she was doing and she still got an investment anyway. And I think that one thing that's always been really clear about Tiffany is who she is. Um, a lot of times, you know, actually when you become indoctrinated with the ways of pitching, you start to cloak who you are um, and just present who you need to be. And I think that even as Tiffany has um, continued on her journey, she holds who she is evident to the world. And so it was really easy to get to know who she was, get to know what her passions were, and to be able to really rely on that being the, the person you're investing in. And so I think that my first impression of her was one that I felt like she really represents what this fund is about. And I say that in so many different ways. But one of the most important ways is that I think that Tiffany prioritizes the collective, which is something that we don't often talk about. You know, when when you're in a space like Tiffany talked a lot about needing to survive all the time, you get in a mode where it's all about you because all you can do is think about your own needs to survive. And I think it's so rare when you find a person who has always needed to figure out how to survive because no one is there taking care of the pieces or giving you everything that you need to also find a person who has enough empathy and self-awareness and emotional intelligence to also figure out how to survive while also prioritizing the collective. I mean, Tiffany is brilliant, right? And she could have started a company about anything, even in the supply chain side, even in her own business knowledge, she could have started a company about anything related to her expertise. But what she did was she utilized entrepreneurship as a pathway not only to elevate herself, but to also bring 
so many other people who are experiencing hardships when it comes to creating relationships with corporations. When she talks about why she wanted to create a scalable business, one of the biggest things she says was, I wanted to create a team. I wanted to create a place where other people could be employed. So in every single thing that she does and says, that prioritization of the collective is so evident. And so I think that was one of the biggest things that drew me and the fun towards her was this not just equity for yourself, but equity really for the community. Beautiful. (laughs) When we're, you know, when we're struggling and trying to survive a lot of times, it gets in the way of us operating in a, in a space of compassion uh, because we are, like you said, having to just try to make it. And so it is a very beautiful thing when a person can hold space for both and continue to be empathetic and compassionate towards others and want to be a part of the solution. So I, I, that's also a very beautiful thing. I agree uh, about you, Tiffany. So how did you decide that, you know, Stimulus and Tiffany were the types of, she was the type of founder and this is the type of business that you wanted to invest in? Sure. So one of the biggest things that I see when we think about women and people of color, and then when you bring that together, when women of color pitch, a lot of times investors feel the need to have this heightened level of validity and credibility. And so there's like this need for women of color to prove so much more than other founders when it comes to pitching. Despite that, I think that Tiffany has done all types of things to be able to demonstrate that validity and credibility in various unique ways. On one hand, I mean, you know this, Naya, that she is everywhere um, and she is willing to do every single thing, right? Like I I sent, um, we didn't even finalize the investment yet. We were thinking about wanting to invest in Tiffany and I just sent her the invite to say like, you know, it'd be so great if she came and she met with our other founders. And she was one of the first founders to email me and say, hey, I bought a plane ticket. I'm I'm ready to go, right? And it's like, she is everywhere and she's relentless in her pursuit of wanting mm-hmm. to create that network. And she's always willing to put herself in situations in which she might not know what she's getting herself into and yet she's <laughs> always willing to go and figure it out. And I think that's one of the qualities that you can't pinpoint when you're doing due diligence. It has to come from different experiences with that founder. And I think every single time, you know, Tiffany had never been to Oregon, right? And to be in that setting and she just totally rolled with it. And any situation, I mean, I drove Tiffany and one of our other founders, we drove all the way up to Washington and she was like, Himalay, where are you taking us? Right. Cause it was just like a long windy path in the woods. And I was like, Oh, don't worry. We're going to our retreat house. It's all good. Right. And it was throwing her into a situation that was totally foreign, totally unknown. She met a bunch of people she didn't know and then had to share a house with them for a couple of days. Right. And she just launched herself into it. She didn't, even though she certainly, as any of us would feel, had a certain level of uncomfortability with the newness and the unknown, she still was willing to take full advantage of the fact that this was a new opportunity instead of seeing it as a barrier. And so I think that really, all of the conversations plus that founder retreat really helped to solidify that this is a founder we want to back. 
And I think that one, obviously, the, the space that she's working in has great market potential, has the ability to create so much equity in a space that really needs it, that is actually not talked about when it comes to vendor relationships with corporations. But even beyond that, I think the thing that investors should be looking at is a founder who's malleable, who's able to move through different situations and continuously see them as opportunities and possibilities. And I think that's what Tiffany demonstrated to us in a number of different ways, which is why we ended up investing in her. It's so valuable to hear you say all of those things, Himalaya, because those are the things that you just don't get, like you said, from a pitch deck or an executive summary. It's part of the experience of experiencing the founder. So Himalaya, it's, it's obvious that you're extremely passionate about leveling the playing field for diverse founders, Black founders. Would love to hear you share with us a little bit about why you, you know, became the managing director of the BFM fund. Sure, absolutely. So the impetus to create this came from a couple different variations and mostly from my background as a social worker. So when I first started my professional journey, I got a master's in social work. I worked in Hunts Point, which is in the South Bronx. And when you think about that community, if you know anything about that community, it's a high risk community um, known for its low literacy rates, low graduation rates, low socioeconomic statuses. But on the other hand, I think that this comes from my upbringing as well. I'm a first generation immigrant to this country. And so I was raised super traditional Indian in my household and then also raised in Connecticut where it's super um, white Eurocentric American. I started to see that reality is just a construct, right? And the ways in which you see the world are informed by your upbringing, are informed by your culture. And by living in a place where there's two very, very opposite and sometimes at odds um, realities, I started to realize that, you know, reality can be constructed in however you want it to. And you can always look at something in two different viewpoints. And so going back to then Hunt's point, I was being told always by my supervisors, by everyone else, you know, this community needs our help. It needs us to save them. And there's not a lot of talent, right? So don't put a lot of your energy because the people of this community will not go far. So that's mm. one way to look at a community. But mm -hmm. in looking in working with that community hand in hand, especially working with both the children and their families, what I started to see was another reality. When you don't think about it from the lens of a socioeconomic or graduation rate, when you look at it from the lens of what Tiffany's saying, not just surviving, but thriving, that community is actually has a bedrock of entrepreneurship. There are so many small business owners because business ownership was created as a necessity since there aren't outside resources being funneled into that community. And so when I worked with the parents, they're brilliant. They're mm -hmm. able to be so resilient, so uh, capital efficient, right? And mm -hmm. be able to stretch dollars in a way that I'd never seen before. So instead of feeling like I needed to, you know, support or rather I needed to save them, I felt like I learned so much more about them. And then as a result of my own misconceptions by working in that community, and that traveled with me wherever I went, right? So even when I left being a formal social worker and I got into business, when I got into the VC space, actually by accident, I had launched a company with my wife when we were doing our MBA and that launched me into VC. And I was like, I don't know what this is. Let me go and figure out what the grading rubric is, right? Because how are you ever supposed to access something if you never know what you're being judged on? 
And so Absolutely. I literally just went to figure that out. And when I went in there, I saw, okay, this is how investors look at entrepreneurs. And this is how investors look at different types of entrepreneurs that don't fit the mold. But from mm -hmm. my vantage point, I've already worked with so many of those different entrepreneurs in other contexts that I was able to then see them in a different light. And instead of seeing people that I needed to save or that I need to, to think about from like a philanthropic perspective, mm -hmm. I saw a community that was being overlooked and being overlooked in a foolish way, right? Because mm -hmm. if you think about market responsiveness and capital efficiency and customer centricity, all of the bedrocks of what HBR has reported over and over and over yes. again as the most financially successful entrepreneurs. That's what you see in these entrepreneurs. And so I am not doing anyone any favors. I'm actually just supporting strength that already mm -hmm. exists. And that's what makes me so passionate is that I'm coming from a position mm -hmm. of facilitating greatness. Wow. That was so rich. And it made me think about so many things. So, I mean, for Black people in the Black community, we know how resourceful we are. We know how creative we have to be, right? We know how we're able to stretch a dollar and do all of these things. Most of us know this because, you know, it's how we grew up or it's what we saw our grandmothers do and so forth. So it's really great to hear you share kind of your paradigm shift, how you were told we need to go in and save this community, but you saw the talent that was there and you saw already um, the entrepreneurship that was happening. And I really appreciate that. Um, two things that come to mind. I went to an HBCU, Historically Black University, Clark Atlanta University, and our motto was find a way or make one. And that still rings true for me like every day. Also being a third generation entrepreneur and knowing that, you know, my father grew and then my brother came along and I came along and we grew a government contracting business into a multi-million dollar business without ever having VC funding. We didn't even know what that was growing up. And so you've seen this um, in our community, but a lot of times we kind of can tap out because there's an extra push and there's some extra fuel and capital needed to really, you know, grow into these generational companies that can really create generational wealth and stand the test of time. And Tiffany talked about something in terms of being able to build a team and being scalable. And we know that having that team and having scalability and even having a succession plan is so important when it comes to having black businesses and BIPOC led businesses that thrive and women businesses that thrive and they can stand the test of time. So what would you say Himalaya to other investors, you know, in terms of really getting them to think about leveling the playing field, um, knowing the barriers that exist for BIPOC founders, female founders, what would you say to other VCs to make sure that capital is more equitably distributed? First is that when investors hear pitches, a lot of times they like to compare pitches side by side and say, we are being totally objective. Um, and that's why we're comparing all of these entrepreneurs to one another. But I think what's really, really critically important is not in your um, haste to be objective, there's this uh, like a step that you're missing over. So when you compare entrepreneurs side by side, it's almost like saying that they started from the same point, that they have the same strengths, right. and also literally what they're pitching is the same thing. So mm -hmm. I'll give like a couple like examples on that end. So when you think about the starting points, if you're assuming that everyone started from the same point, 
then it's easy for you to say, well, this entrepreneur got a little bit further than this entrepreneur. It's really easy to say, oh, well, this entrepreneur's all in because they never wanted to throw in the towel because they were are willing to be full-time on this without ever raising capital, without ever having revenue. But when you think about the societal dynamics, women in general, and especially women of color, are saddled with so much responsibility outside. They are always having to be the stable one in their families and their extended families. So if that's the case, then how could a woman of color ever take that leap to work for free, full time on an idea that she has if she also has to be the person in her entire family unit that holds it together for everyone else to thrive? And so you can't think about just entrepreneurs side by side as being equal. We really have to think about who they are, where they came from, what their additional responsibilities are to then think about, well, you know, maybe women of color especially do need more capital initially because they can't just one work for equity themselves. And then when they're trying to hire their team, their team, if they're trying to hire diversely, can't also just work for equity or, you know, for free for the next 10 years. And so there are different starting points. The other point on that is that a lot of investors will uh, rate pitches side by side. And what I often find is, and this happened to me in the course of one day, and it really like smacked me in the face and really brought it all together. I talked with a founder who was a male founder who told me, um, you know, we have $2.4 million um, in our pipeline. And I was like, wow, that's so great. You know, you've had so much traction. And as I started to dig in deeper and deeper, all of those are just grants, you know, and RFPs that he's applied for. And I said, like, you know, what is the possibility of you getting them? Do you know? And he's like, it's, it's, it's ours for sure. (laughs) I talked to a woman founder, a, a black woman that same day in a different vertical, but also selling to different government contracts. And she Mm -hmm. told me when I asked her, can you tell me a little bit about your traction? She already had bucketed, here are RFPs we've applied for, here are RFPs that we've interviewed for, here are RFPs that were in contract. None of those were listed in her traction, right? Because she said, none of these are contracted and therefore ours. But she had three different buckets Mm -hmm. of ways in which she was getting that traction. So when Mm -hmm. you think about, when you ask that simple question of what is your revenue, what is your traction? Two different people are going Mm. to answer that in two different ways, ways. even when their traction and progress are exactly the same. And so I think Mm -hmm. on that note, you need to be able to distinguish and really dig into how Mm -hmm. different types of people communicate. Women and people of color have often been told don't say anything until you're sure. And then when you combine that with women of color, they're not going to say anything until they're absolutely sure that it's happening. So what you're hearing from a non-woman of color is the end vision of where they hope to get to today. What you're hearing from a woman of color is where she's at today and all the steps she's going to take to get to that end vision. And so you can't be treating it like it's the same and discounting it like it's the same. Preach, preach, preach. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, like i'd be thinking of jinxing it if i say it out loud yes yes a lot of times we do because we're so we're so accustomed to it being snatched right from us and so um, when i was just saying preach himalaya i mean you broke that thing down so well and it, it's incredible to hear someone articulate it that maybe hasn't walked in your same shoes we're not starting from the same 
framework a lot of times. So how we show up is going to show up differently. It doesn't mean that we are less capable. Actually, it can mean that we are more capable because of all of the resourcefulness that we've had to, you know, kind of activate in order to get to this point. So it's just beautiful to hear you articulate that. Absolutely. I think one of the things that actually you mentioned, and I want to uh, just talk a little bit more about that is a lot of people look at that and say, well, obviously, you know, different individuals needed more charity or needed our help, right? And it's really important. I think one of the the biggest things I find in the investor community is a confusion. Capital that you have doesn't equate to expertise, right? And so just because you are supporting an entrepreneur and looking at them through an equitable lens and providing maybe additional resources and additional capital doesn't mean that you are somehow saving them in any way. They still Mm -hmm. have the expertise. They're still the ones who are generating value for your portfolios, right? And they're still the thought leaders in any industry. And so really being able to hold that space of we have the power to influence, to empower, to facilitate, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to create a hierarchy where we are the ones who should be impressed by founders. Every single day, something that I find um, even in my own discerning is when I look, when I talk with other investors, the investors who are the most curious, the ones who are willing to learn from founders are the ones that I tend to gravitate towards for co-investment opportunities. Because mm-hmm. if you have that mindset of I'm just here to facilitate, I'm not here as a person who's in a position of power to once again facilitate the cycle of oppression. Mm-hmm. The people who are there to facilitate and the people who are there to learn actually become the best investors because they're Absolutely. always open to learning. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that can be the greatest tools is, mm-hmm. um, you know, like even with Tiffany, I've learned so much. Tiffany is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Tiffany has done so much in this space. And I don't, yes. I'm not a supply chain expert, but right. Tiffany has taught me so much because I'm willing to learn from Tiffany just as much as Tiffany is able to gather resources from me. And in that bi-directional relationship, I think both of us grow. And so I think that is one of the biggest lessons that I've learned is how much investors can learn from founders if they're open to receiving that. And I think Mm -hmm. that also makes you great investors because then founders are willing to come to you when something is wrong. Because if you're Mm -hmm. always in a position where, where you uh, create this hierarchy where founders always need to prove to you how great they are, then why would they come to you when something is wrong? That's only confirming your beliefs that they're not good enough to receive your capital, receive your resources. Mm-hmm. I think if you want to be a great investor, you have to be willing to be to listen and to be a learner from your founder because they will tell you how best to support them. And if you support mm-hmm. them in the best way possible, that guarantees that you have the best returns possible. And so, yeah, I think that's like my biggest thing is being able to prioritize founders who prioritize the collective, being able to prioritize women of color founders who are telling you exactly where they're at right now, instead of overly, um, you know, overshadowing everything that they hope to become, they're telling you the steps right then and there, and you can support them and work with them as a partner in getting to that journey. And always, I think that third piece is 
making sure that there's no confusion. You have the capital, but they have the expertise and making sure that you work hand in hand with them to be able to Mm -hmm. build that brighter future. That mutual respect. I hear mutual respect. I hear honesty. I hear true, authentic relationship building. Um, And yeah, and, and just really acknowledging what the the founder brings in terms of expertise. Um, so, so yeah, I don't hear that sort of mindset often, and it is beautiful to hear from you, Himalaya. So as we've talked about um, a lot of different things, Tiffany, what would you tell your younger self as it relates to entrepreneurship and fundraising? Mm. So definitely my younger self would be pray a lot, <laughs> stay prayed up, yeah. focusing on self-awareness. I'm really a big person of understanding yourself and what you're building because you need a lot of self-motivation to be an entrepreneur, um, especially until you obtain the support system that you need to you know, grow and thrive, that you have to encourage yourself before you worry about someone else encouraging you because that's going to keep you going at the end of the day because if you're focused so much on other people, if they say something bad to you, it's going to destroy you and you don't want that. So I learned that um, very early on and then in the VC mind, do due diligence on them as much as they were doing due diligence on you and understanding that it's a privilege to be in your company, not the other way around, even though it doesn't mm. feel like that sometimes when you're asking <laughs> for someone's money. <laughs> right, right. But at the end of the day, they're going to get a return on you, not the other way around, right? So right. you have to remember that. And it took me a long time to understand that, mm-hmm. that I'm building this company. I have this expertise if... And when this turns into a billion dollar company, you're going to reap the benefits of my work, right? Not mm-hmm. the work <laughs> the other way around. So mm-hmm. keeping up with that confidence throughout, which is hard when you're mm-hmm. asking for their money, mm-hmm. but understand that it's a privilege to work with you um, and take full advantage of that. I love that. Actually, I think you might be one of the only founders that I have heard to really unpack that in that way that, you know, hey, we're bringing an opportunity that's going to yield a very high ROI for them. And so, yeah, it's a privilege for them to be in our company. I love that. Uh, So as you talked about praying a lot, something that I also do, um, being self-aware, which is so important. um, Talk to us a little bit about your own self-care strategies. I would love to hear what you do for your self-care and well-being. And I'd love to hear the same from Himalaya. Yeah, so I just got better with self-care <laughs> over the years. Um, so it's, it's a continuous journey of self-care. So for me, definitely prayer is first. I pray every morning. I have like a morning prayer that I start the day with. Um, I pray before every meeting. I'm like going like this <laughs> every meeting just to make sure. Because it kind of calms me down before I, I do a meeting, before I pitch mm-hmm. to be like, Tiffany, relax, this is okay. Or before I do a speaking engagement, to like breathe. And mm-hmm. it, it just calms my nerves. So definitely prayer. I'm not... In meditation yet, I know that's your thing. I'm trying to get into it. My therapist keeps telling me to meditate, so I'm working on it. I haven't been able to focus my mind to do you it gotta jo- You got to join Utopia Spa and Global Wellness. We have it every week for you. That is the goal. That's the goal. But I'm, you know, I'm getting back into working out regularly to clear my mind, speaking mm-hmm. to my friends, not just with the solution, but with the problem. If I need that venting session, definitely a lot of spa days, a lot of massages, and just taking better care of myself because I found over the years because I was so stressed and I was so tired. I stopped personally taking care of myself. So I had to get back to that, like really self-care, you know, eating right, working out, um, having fun, smiling, even something as simple as smiling because you're so stressed out. You're like, did I smile today? Did I laugh today? Did I take a walk today? So 
just being uh, more intentional on myself. I tweeted yesterday, I woke up this morning choosing me and um, trying to make sure that that I do that every day because I, I put so much in front of me, my team, my you know, my partners, my customers, and sometimes I forget to choose me that day. So I'm making sure to do that every day. I love that. And I think as founders, sometimes we feel guilty for taking a moment to breathe, to pause, to be with friends or family. And I was just in your home city. I was just in Philly this weekend at my family reunion. And it is um, a lifeline, you know, to be around loved ones and to laugh and to connect. And I mean, it's life giving. So we have to do this, you all, we have to, to keep doing this great work. Himalaya would love to hear. It sounds like you're all about wellness. You did a retreat. So talk to us. What are some of your self-care strategies? You know, similar to Tiffany, I think that um, when you prioritize the collective, sometimes you forget to prioritize yourself. So for my whole life, I have seen, especially with women of color, this need to be a pillar of stability for everyone else. And so I've thrown myself into creating spaces um, and groups and events that allow for others to, and especially women of color, to be able to get that self-care, but always kind of holding myself back because I feel like if I'm the creator of something like this and I'm the facilitator, I shouldn't be participating in it as well. And there's Mm -hmm. this feeling of guilt. And so actually um, over just the last few months, um, I would say the last six months, I have part of my self-care has been allowing myself actually to be vulnerable within these communities and to also express hurt and trouble that and tough times that I'm going through and receive that support. I think that even when there's so many different avenues for us to get access uh, mental wellness, if we're not able to remove that mental block of being able to receive that, I think it's really difficult to ever achieve um, some sort of balance with mental wellness. And so that's what I've been doing is forcing myself to be put in situations where I talk about myself and I talk about some of the issues that I'm going through and allowing for other people. Uh, Tiffany like hit it on the, on the head by saying, we always need to come up with solutions. I remember going to Tiffany with a problem and I said, I'm so sorry that I'm coming to you with a problem and I don't have a solution. And she reminded me, you don't have to come with solutions all the time. And so I think that's something that I've been practicing is actually going to communities that I'm a part of and saying, here's a problem and I have no solution, help. And I will, I will receive that help. Um, And so doing that. And then again, what Tiffany's saying of like prioritizing myself and my happiness, I am married and I have two dogs and taking just a moment away um, every single day, even if it's just 30 minutes to go walk the dogs and walk with my wife and just talk about things outside of the business. I think that's been really helpful to just give your mind and body and spirit a rest so that it can, you know, have the the mental fortitude that's needed to do this work. That was Tiffany Stannard from Stimulus, which you can find at getstimulus.io along with Himalaya Rao from the BFM Fund, which you can find at bfm.fund. Thank you for listening to the Equity Raise podcast from the American Underground in Durham, North Carolina. If you like this show, please rate, review, and share with your networks. We want to spread the word that although VC funding goes to a small fraction of women and people of color, it does not have to be this way. 
So we'll continue these conversations to make a change. This podcast was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Naya Fela Powell. Make it a utopian day.